History is filled with watershed moments that could have unfolded very differently. What if D-Day had failed and the Allied forces lost in that crucial battle? Or if President Richard Nixon refused to resign? What if Hillary Clinton had won the 2016 presidential election? My fellow Americans, today you sent a message to the whole world. Our values endure, our democracy stands strong, and our motto remains E Pluribus Unum, out of many, one. That's part of what former Secretary of State Clinton hoped to say on election night. It's voiced by an actor. Instead, she conceded the next day to President Trump. History is littered with drafts of undelivered speeches like that one. Speechwriter Jeff Nussbaum, who most recently penned words for President Joe Biden, collected them for his new book. It's called Undelivered, the Never Heard Speeches That Would Have Rewritten History. And he joins us from Washington, D.C. Jeff, welcome to the program. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. So Hillary Clinton's planned victory speech included a particularly powerful ending that we'll play in a moment. But why do you see undelivered speeches as a particularly meaningful tool to help us understand history? One of the things we often say, the cliche, is that newspapers are the first draft of history. In a way, newspapers and news are the second draft of history. The first draft of history is what the people shaping and making that history have to say. And so while what they say is important, the moments where history rested on a razor's edge and there could have been one or two or three different outcomes, and those outcomes also had to be envisioned, provides us a first draft of an alternative history and a couple steps down what that path might have looked like as well. And so this has become a bit of an obsession of mine. Mm. Hillary Clinton's mother, Dorothy, was sent across the country by her parents at a young age, and she endured an abusive childhood. Clinton's undelivered 2016 victory speech refers to her mom towards the end. I think about my mother every day. Sometimes... I think about her on that train. I wish I could walk down the aisle and find the little wooden seats where she sat, holding tight to her even younger sister, alone, terrified. She doesn't yet know how much she will suffer. She doesn't yet know she will find the strength to escape that suffering. That's still a long way off. The whole future is still unknown as she stares out at the vast country moving past her, I dream of going up to her and sitting down next to her, taking her in my arms and saying, look at me, listen to me, you will survive. You will have a good family of your own and three children. And as hard as it might be to imagine, your daughter will grow up and become the President of the United States. That was part of the victory speech that Hillary Clinton prepared for election night 2016. It's voiced there by an actor. Jeff, how did those words come together? Yeah, this is a really interesting story because the victory speech that Hillary Clinton had intended to give in 2016 was put together, as a lot of her speeches were, by a committee led by a wonderful writer named Dan Schwerin. But one of the things you see in the rest of the draft, which I also share in the book, is that so many of the fissures, so many of the cracks that ran through her campaign ran right into the victory speech. What are we going to say to the Bernie supporters? What are we going to say to the Trump voters who she had previously called deplorable? What are we going to say to the media, the elite media that had expected a bigger win? And finally, what are we going to say to history? 
And so the speech was wrestling with, as you see in the draft, all of these various pressures and tensions, but it was missing that moment, that moment of lift. And what happened is that when you're a speechwriter for a campaign, you get lots of unsolicited suggestions coming in. And, and when the campaign is not doing as well as people think it should, you get lots and lots of unsolicited suggestions coming in. And this was a suggestion that came in from a poet named Jory Graham, a Pulitzer Prize winning poet, which the speechwriter saw along with lots of other emails and filed off to the side. But it was kind of a case of, of convergent evolution of thinking because Hillary had often gone back to her mother's difficult childhood and her mother's story as a touchstone. And so here at, which, at what was to be the, the proudest, most elevated moment in her political career and a historical moment for our country, she wanted to go back to that touchstone. And meanwhile, as, as Dan was looking to write, he also saw that he had this email written by a poet in which Hillary doesn't just tell the story of her mother, but has an imagined conversation with her mother on this train as her eight-year-old mother is sent west, basically into indentured servitude. And so the combination of the speech with all of the, you know, trying to account for all of the various pressures, but then this moment where we get to see in the space of a generation, what's possible, not just for one person, but for our country, would have been, I think, immensely compelling. And even just hearing that reading, and by the way, that's one of the reasons why the audiobook here is so fun. Hearing that reading, uh, I still find it emotional. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. Now let's get back to our conversation with Jeff Nussbaum. He's a political speechwriter who most recently penned words for President Joe Biden. Jeff, learning about so many undelivered speeches reveals how easily history could have taken a different course. Why is that such an important lesson to remember? Yeah, and first I want to say to the, the person who tweeted about Nixon's speech in the, in the event of the failure of the moon landing, I didn't include that speech in the book because there's no evidence Nixon engaged with it. William Sapphire, famous speechwriter and later columnist, wrote it, but Nixon didn't see it. So in the book, my bar for inclusion is, did the speaker, did the leader actually have to see and wrestle with the idea? Um, But to answer your question, why does it matter? I sometimes say, and this sounds vaguely Donald Rumsfeldian, we think things happen the way they happened, because in retrospect, that's why they had to happen. But one of the things we realize in this book is it's the decisions that people make in these moments of choosing and consequence that really have profound impacts on how history proceeds, how, what path we choose. And there are lots of examples in the book, and I'm sure we'll talk more about some of them, but you know, a progressive mayor of Boston, Kevin White, in the mid-70s, choosing to shut down South Boston High School rather than integrate it. You know, imagine Boston has, instead of a progressive mayor, a man who becomes a northern George Wallace. So these are big outcomes. And of course, and we can talk about this as well, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, President Kennedy chooses to launch airstrikes on Cuba, 800 of them, thinking that the missile sites were not yet operational, but realizing, as we now have in retrospect years later, that they indeed were operational, we could have, we could have been in, in nuclear Armageddon. So these decisions 
which appear in retrospect to have been obvious are anything but obvious in the moment. And that's really the lesson of this book is all of us, you know, use the influence, use the positions we, we have to make the difference we can because it can affect a community, a country, the world. Well, it, the chapter on John F. Kennedy's planned announcement to launch airstrikes on Cuba is fascinating and that you really get into the experience of the speechwriter themselves and, and, and how they may be writing a speech, arguing a position that goes against everything they believe in and, and how even in that process, that can, that can color the memory of how the speech came about, who actually wrote it. it. Explain that a bit. Yeah, and this is something I, I try in each chapter to have a little digression, pulling back the curtain on the speech writing process. How did this speech come together? What tools is the speechwriter trying to use? What is it like to be in a room like this? And in the case of the Kennedy airstrike on Cuba speech, everyone involved with this writing of the speech, in retrospect, denies writing the speech. And in the speech, there, there's a line, and speechwriters often do this, when you're waiting on information that you don't have, you just put in a parenthetical. It's like journalists use the, the, the letters TK, TK meaning... Yeah meaning something is to come. Well, in this speech, there's a parenthetical that says, follows a description of first reports of action. And in the book, I point out to the history of humanity, that parenthetical could have been everything. And Robert Kennedy later basically said, the stress of this situation had some of us kind of thinking funny. And I found it immensely interesting that after the fact, when this speech became public, Anyone who might have been involved with writing it denied it. And so I, if, if finding undelivered speeches is a bit of an obsession, this speech became an obsession within an obsession. And I even commissioned an FBI forensic analyst to look at the handwriting on the draft to see, can we get a sense of at least who laid hands on it? And we know that McGeorge Bundy, who was Kennedy's national security advisor, did. That's whose handwriting was on it. But Ted Sorensen, who was, was a... Uh, a wonderful wordsmith for President Kennedy, uh, and a conscientious objector during World War II, um, vehemently denied having written it. But there's some evidence, and in the book I share the evidence, that whether he wrote the entire speech or not, he certainly wrote part of it. And part of that is because when you're writing a speech for two different outcomes, Often the arguments leading up to the outcome are the same. It's only the decision that differs. And part of it is because if you're writing something that is, and not to get into the psychology of it, but if you're writing something that's, that's morally or emotionally abhorrent to you, you actually can forget doing it. And the example I use in this book is I worked for Tom Daschle, uh, Senate Democratic leader, Senate majority leader, and, and uh, just a wonderful person to work for. But in the lead up to the Iraq war resolution, um, we were, we went back and forth and, and he ultimately decided to support. And then I remember exactly where I was sitting when I wrote it. And I remember struggling to figure out how to use track changes at the time. But I went back and looked at the, at the speech itself and I don't remember writing a single word. And so the point as it pertains on a much lower level in some ways to, to the speech we were talking about where JFK announces airstrikes on Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis is, is that in the heat of the moment, you can kind of forget what you've done. 
you can forget what you've said. And that's one of the things I say in this chapter, which is Ted, Ted Sorensen may have, may have written this and he may honestly look at it and say, I didn't write that. In the speech writing process, especially when we're talking about political speech writing, how, how many hands touch that speech? How many people are in the room or have input into that final, that final version? Yeah, a lot. Um, and probably more than, than used to. You know, early on, speechwriters were poets second, policy advisors first. I think of Ted Sorensen and I think of Dick Goodwin or even think of Alexander Hamilton for George Washington. There wasn't a policy apparatus that came between Alexander Hamilton and George Washington on the farewell address or, or something else. But over time, as speeches became worked over and parsed over, more people at least got to look at it and review. It, currently in the White House, without oversharing too much of the process, the policy apparatus takes a look at a speech, the communications apparatus looks at a speech, the research folks fact check it, the lawyers make sure you're not getting into any trouble. So, so a lot of people look at it. Now again, I will say that the speech at the end of the day belongs to the speaker. And so their input is the most important and the final word. But there are a lot of people who have something to say about each speech. Susan emailed us, one of the speeches I remember was Sarah Palin's acceptance speech when McCain announced her as his running mate. I was really impressed. And Donna emailed us, the speech Robert Kennedy gave the night MLK was killed will never leave me. Let's turn to to a different type of speech. In 2017, the film Moonlight won the Academy Award for Best Picture, but an envelope mix-up led to the presenters announcing La La Land as the winner. That movie's cast was already on stage before they realized the mistake. This is not a joke. I'm afraid they read the wrong thing. This is not a joke. Moonlight has won Best Picture. Moonlight, Best Picture. In the confusion and surprise of the moment, Moonlight director Barry Jenkins got on stage. Even in my dreams, this could not be true. But to hell with dreams. I'm done with it because this is true. Oh my goodness. Jenkins delivered an abbreviated version of what he planned to say, comparing himself and his co-writer to the movie's main character. Terrell and I are Chiron. We are that boy. And when you watch Moonlight, you don't assume a boy who grew up how and where we did would grow up and make a piece of art that wins an Academy Award. Certainly don't think he would grow up to win Best Picture. I've said that a lot. And what I've had to admit is that I placed those limitations on myself. I denied myself that dream. Not you. Not anyone else, me. And so, to anyone watching this who sees themselves in us, let this be a symbol, a reflection that leads you to love yourself, because doing so may be the difference between dreaming it all and, somehow, through the Academy's grace, realizing dreams you never allowed yourself to have. That was the speech Moonlight director Barry Jenkins planned to give on stage at the Academy Awards before things were derailed. And again, it's voiced there by an actor. Jeff, what stands out to you about Jenkins' words? One of the things I love about this chapter, and in each chapter, as I said, I have a little bit of a digression on what the, what the speech or speechwriter is trying to do. Barry Jenkins is a master storyteller. Moonlight was a beautiful movie. Everything he does has been beautiful. And one of the stories he wanted to tell in winning Best Picture 
was the story, and, and he shared this later at a South by Southwest conference, and that's where I, I got a lot of the information from, for the book. He talked about the process of filming Moonlight, where they would, went to Liberty City in Miami, a neighborhood where he grew up. And one of the things he says is in this neighborhood, there aren't a lot of streetlights. The streetlights blow out, they don't get replaced. And to come in to film the movie, they brought in lights. And the lights brought out children in the neighborhood to play. And he remembered in the, in the act of filming, looking over, and one of the kids had gone over to the video village where the monitors are and was sitting in Barry Jenkins' chair with his headset. And that's the realization, that's the moment where he says, I saw that child having a dream for themselves that I had denied myself. And so it's just one of these moments that's immensely powerful that gets denied because a, you know, a guy's busy taking pictures of Emma Stone backstage as opposed to doing his job. But, but it's this powerful moment that's denied about the power of story and what it means to someone when they can see themselves in a story. And one of the things I talk about in the book is, is we like to think that we are thinking animals with feelings. But the truth is when you look at the science and when you look at what, what moves people, we are feeling animals who occasionally think. And so story in speeches is so immensely powerful. And Barry Jenkins, as a storyteller, denied the chance to tell the story he wanted to tell about this beautiful story he wrote was a real missed moment. We'll be back with more in just a moment. And a reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. Let's get back into the conversation. We got this question from Pratik who tweeted, how is the life of a speechwriter changing in our Twitter world where leaders are continuously sharing their opinions before the final outcome? I love this question because I often say I've spent most of my career doing a job that I could do with a, a quill and parchment or maybe a chisel and granite. It's pretty analog. And the world has changed dramatically. And people go to audiences and they get larger audiences with, with videos or tweets or TikTok. And so part of it, part of the change has been that when you're working on a speech, you're acutely aware of what's the moment going to be? What's the viral moment? What's the tweet going to be? But at the same time, something hasn't changed, which is that a speech is often the clearest, most direct encapsulation of a leader's goals or agenda or the policies they're putting forward. And it's often the place where you do the clearest explanation. So while I think fewer people process speeches as a whole, right? There was a time in our history where speeches were entertainment. People went to the Lincoln-Douglas debates because they saw two people each talk for a couple hours. That's not our attention span now. So while you're not often hearing the whole speech, the speech does still serve as sort of the Rosetta Stone from which the tweet is drawn, from which the text for the Instagram post is drawn. So while it's less often taken in as a whole, it still serves as a foundational document. And, and that's why there's value in that as well. But has the job gotten harder in this media landscape when there are so many different streams of information flowing out and you've got to use that speech as a way to refine, um, capture, perhaps, redefine some things a candidate has said. 
Yeah, well, I'll never complain about the job being hard because the job is such an honor. But I will say, I think comedians talk about saying how hard it is to do comedy when you have to compete with everyone on Twitter. And speeches are hard when everyone also has an opinion. And so I keep going back to how can you as a speechwriter help the speaker say the thing that only they can say? If you're worried about out-competing or out-performing everything everyone else can say, it is going to be a hard job. But if you're worried about helping the speaker, whether that's the President of the United States or a CEO or foundation head, say the thing that only they can say or connect with the audience in only the way that they can connect with the audience, then it helps blunt some of the challenge of, of, of the overwhelming feeling like, how am I going to make this thing land in a world where there's so much other noise. Malka emailed, By far the most moving speech I have ever heard here in America was Barack Obama's speech about race after the Reverend Wright controversy. My husband and I stood transfixed as we watched it. Jeff, you also uncovered an undelivered speech that former New York Mayor Abe Beam would have given, and that came about in a particularly fortuitous way. Tell us that story. Yeah, I'm neither a professional historian or a professional journalist, but writing this book allowed me to do a little bit of both. I had read a story in the New York Times by the wonderful reporter Sam Roberts, where he said, New York came so close to going bankrupt that a speech was prepared. And so, as in the course of writing this book, I started to see breadcrumbs everywhere and figure out how to follow them. In this case, I thought, I got to find this speech. And so I went to the person I went to first the reporter who said maybe the person who had been press secretary at the time had it, has it. I interviewed the press secretary. He, he didn't have it. He said maybe the person who had been this outside PR advisor has it. I, I went and interviewed him. Both of them were, were living but were in failing health near the end of their lives. He didn't have it. He said maybe the guy who was the lawyer who prepared the bankruptcy filing has it. I went to his office. He showed me the bankruptcy filing he had prepared for this incredibly dramatic moment in New York's history. And it all took place against the backdrop of the Al Smith dinner one night. And so recreating the dinner, recreating all these powerful people, pulling each other off to the side, figuring out who's going to bail out New York. Will the teacher's pension plan do this? It, it, was, it, it really reads like a, a suspenseful moment. And indeed it was. But the bankruptcy lawyer said, I remember seeing the speech, but I don't think I have it. At which point his assistant tapped me on the shoulder and said, I think I might have what you're looking for. And she opened a drawer of a dusty old filing cabinet and withdrew the only remaining copy of Mayor Beam declaring New York City bankrupt. And so there were lots of moments like this where I just followed the breadcrumbs and was able to find things. There are plenty of moments where I followed the breadcrumbs and they led to a brick wall. And so one of the things I joke about is maybe the publication of this book will bring some of these back out of the woodwork. (laughs) Well, let's turn to another important speech. John F. Kennedy was assassinated in 1963 in Texas while riding in a presidential motorcade. And here's part of the speech he planned to give when he arrived at his destination, delivered here by an actor. We in this country, in this generation, are, by destiny rather than choice, the watchmen on the walls of world freedom. We ask, therefore, that we may be worthy of our power and responsibility, that we may exercise our strength with wisdom and restraint, and that we may achieve in our time and for all time the ancient vision of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. 
You wrote about the final undelivered speeches of other famous figures, including Albert Einstein and FDR. What do they have in common? Yeah, so this is my last chapter, and I call it Last Words, and it's speeches that people were working on at the time of their death. And one of the things that's interesting about the Kennedy speech is it just reads like a warning to us today. He basically says in one line, Today other voices are heard in the land, voices preaching doctrines wholly unrelated, unrelated to reality. Doctrines wholly unrelated to reality, which feels pretty relevant to some of what we're seeing in our politics today. And, and his point was the speech, to the extent is known, is about, you know, we must be the watchman on the wall for world freedom. But he was also saying that watchman has to be looking in uh, about, you know, against the threats to our, our country internally. And that feels relevant today. But all of these speeches, Einstein was prepared to speak on Israel Independence Day. Pope Pius XI was prepared to disavow Mussolini. FDR was prepared to talk about uh, what life looked like after World War II. He had the line, not just an end to war, but an end to the beginnings of all war. And Kennedy talking about global and domestic security. It's an irony and an emotional irony when you read the chapter that all of these leaders across different countries and times and places and moments were all talking about a form of peace and what it takes to achieve it, what it requires for us to live in harmony. And it's as you see that these become their lasting message to the ages, maybe we hear them a little more clearly. I'm wondering on the back end of writing this book, Jeff, how, how you're thinking about the craft of speech writing, how perhaps you think your, your approach might change going forward. I think one of the things, as I reflect both on my time with President Biden and I reflect on this book, is that the little things are big things. I think about when I was working with President Biden, sometimes the least important speech he would give that day would make the biggest difference in the life of someone. And so just reminding myself that these things matter, that yes, the rhetorical tail can't wag the action dog. There need to be actions and policies that make a difference. But the words that help connect people to these policies, that help explain to them what these things will do in their lives, it, 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 it's ironic because earlier in this conversation, we said, does speech writing matter anymore? And I think my takeaway from this book is maybe it matters more than ever. That's Jeff Nussbaum. He's a former presidential speechwriter. His new book is called Undelivered, The Never Heard Speeches That Would Have Rewritten History. Jeff, thanks for speaking with us. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Today's producers were Avery J.C. Kleinman and Catherine Fink. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.